I never once thought that maybe because they lived in America that their belief systems were changing too. What are my values? What do I really want to do? Time isn't running out. My journey gives me a different perspective on life. Everyone is like that. I kind of feel a little more fearless in chasing music all the way. I want you to learn that there's a difference between speaking poorly about your parents and speaking clearly about things that are affecting you. The fulfillment is not gonna come without hard work. You know in your heart kind of who you are. It's the right choice. It's 100% the right choice. When you're they see like those questions. Hey, she's 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 study in There's like a deeper meaning behind all of this. Like it's, it's how you were raised, what you were taught, what you were conditioned to believe. This is the Desi Condition. What's up, Bondus? This is Jai Wolf, and you're listening to the Desi Condition. Side note, just in case you're not a chosen one, Bondu means friend in Bangla. So what's up, Bondus? I'm Thonushree. I'm the creator slash host of the Desi Condition podcast and platform. For those of you just joining us for the first time, you are so welcome here. TDC is a space to explore South Asian mental health and the human condition through a South Asian perspective. And um, when I'm not podcasting, I'm teaching high school math. I love it. It's the greatest joy in my life, uh, but that's a whole different episode. So I am joined here today by Ravi, our audio engineer. Ravi, what's up, babe? What's going on? My name is Ravi. I am the audio engineer for the Desi Condition podcast. Outside of this world, I am a petroleum engineer doing that full-time, and I'm currently working on transitioning to music full-time, so that's me. Um, okay, so for today, we have some questions for you, Sajib. A little bit about the structure for today, we kind of broke it up into three different sections. So the first is your story and your, your musical identity. The second is your music career, and then the third, we're going to end with some fun questions. Awesome. So, sweet, yeah. Let's do it. Yes. So thank you for joining us. So tell us, Sajib, what is new and exciting in the world of Jay Wolf? Well, so <laughs> we're coming off a, uh, you know, off a whirlwind year after this pandemic. And it's been, it's been really just a lot that's going on right now. I mean, you know, I think over the past year, we've been just trying to figure out what we wanted to do during this time. Um, because it kind of threw a wrench in all of our plans. So before I talk about what we we're about to do, I think we have to like go back a few years. Basically, we released an album in 2019. Um, and you know, when you release an album, you're basically in an album era for a few years. You know, you go on tour, you press and all this stuff. So what we were looking forward to is doing, you know, two to three years of touring and and taking the show and, and the record around the world. And we were super stoked on that. Especially because when you're writing an album, you put years and a lot of effort into it, you know. And we did that first year of touring. We were really excited about it. Um, did the U.S. and Australia, and that was a lot of fun. And then, you know, we had a really big 2020 planned. We're supposed to do Coachella. We're supposed to play Red Rocks in Denver. Um, and then also do a bunch of dates across the U.S., just festival dates, basically. And then as we were, like, getting ready for this, this whole pandemic comes in. And it's been interesting for the music industry because depending on where you were in your cycle, it, it must have affected you in different ways. If you're about to release an album last year, um, that must have been really tough because, you know, you're releasing music, but then you can't like go on tour with it. Um, if you are at the end of your cycle, you kind of got lucky because you did all the touring and then you got to like rest a little bit during the pandemic. 
But for us, it was kind of a mix of both of like, all right, well, we at least we did the full US tour, but now we can't like continue the momentum, you know, which put us in kind of a, a tricky position. Well, oh, hey, we got a cat cameo. <laughs> but um, <laughs> what was nice though was that, you know, I kind of treated it as like a break. It was a nice mental break because the past few years have been really hectic. We went so hard with writing music and touring, which was so much fun. Um, but it was nice to take some time off and, and kind of figure out what we wanted to do next. I think the hardest thing was timing when, when things were about to get better. You know, we were like, is it going to be spring 21? Is it going to be fall 21? Is it going to be 22? Is this going to be a two year long thing? Um, and so what's nice now is that, you know, everyone's getting vaccinated and things are looking up and it's, it's really exciting to see that things are slowly turning back to normal. And I think for us, the fall is looking like a time to like, you know, we're getting show bookings again and hopefully we get to put on some shows and go on tour. Um, and yeah, it's basically kind of slowly preparing and gearing up for, for what's next. And we're just writing new music and, and trying to have a plan for, for the next year and get back on our feet. You know, I think for the music industry, it'll be like probably like a two year long thing before things are truly back to normal. I think some of the shows that are opening up now are like, um, distanced or limited capacity. I know some artists are playing Red Rocks over the summer, which is a nearly a 10,000 capacity venue, but they're doing quarter capacity at about 2000. Um, so there's a lot of like varying, you know, uh, factors going into going on tour. And then with the vaccine stuff, I mean, hopefully we'll have herd, herd immunity or whatever by the end of the year, but it would be nice if there was some sort of like vaccine tracking system of like, if you're buying a ticket, you have to be vaccinated. Um, to attend the show or whatever, but that's a lot of stuff that, that people are figuring out now, but I think that day by day, it's just looking brighter, which is really exciting. Yeah. I remember I was supposed to see you actually perform in August. And then obviously, I mean, I bought the tickets before any of the pandemic stuff. And then obviously that didn't happen. So I got pushed back to this August. So I'm hoping, hoping, I don't know, I'm not holding on to too much hope, yeah. but it would be really, it's really New- fun. It's the New York show, right? Yeah. And I believe it was going to be at Brooklyn Mirage, I want to say. Yeah, at the Mirage. Yeah, that one's, it's still, still on, obviously, like, yeah, I mean, like, it really just comes down to New York State, comes down to the state of vaccinations. And this is why I, like, I hate that it's such a touchy subject, because, like, we should all obviously get vaccinated. But, you know, we live in a country where it's controversial to, you know, the whole, not even just taking a vaccine, but the idea of, like, being forced to take a vaccine, I don't know. It all I know is that it the the slower the process, the more it just hurts anyone in like the creative arts world. So please get vaccinated. <laughs> <laughs> For sure. Um, so I am curious about young Sajib. Did you ever imagine that you would be where you are now? No, definitely not. It's funny because uh it's just, you know, in our culture, the, going into the arts is just I don't want to say frowned upon, but like, it's not, not it's not like enforced or it's not encouraged yet. That's a better way of putting it, which is funny because as you know, as a Bangladeshi Bengali, like music and art is so like integral within our culture, you know, it's like very historically ingrained. And when you grow up, you learn all this traditional songs and everything. And usually any Bengali person has like an artistic relative or like a, a, a singer in the family or someone who plays sitar or, or plays harmonium or something like my mom, she knew how to play um, harmonium and, and steel guitar. 
So it's funny that like, even though they have these skills and they appreciate the arts, there's no like, you, you can't, you can't do this. You can't do this as a real job, you know? Yeah. And it's tricky. Yeah. And it's tricky as an immigrant because, you know, when they come here, they're like, oh, we left like, you know, our whole lives behind for you to do this. Like what? Like they want you to have stable income, stable job. And that's why they always push people to become engineers and doctors, you know? So that was, that was the original plan for a very long time. Cause my parents, they have, um, they're from like the physics world. My dad is like a PhD in physics. My mom has her master's in physics. So I think that was kind of like in line with where I was going to go. I, I was really, I was going to do med school, like pre-med, like I was doing AP bio and, and that was kind of a, the path I was on at first. So I wasn't thinking like, Oh, I'm going to do, do music that slowly shifted into like, okay, maybe I can meet somewhere in between and work in the music industry, become a manager or an A&R at a label or something like that. Um, and that was during college when I was like, oh, I don't know if I want to be a doctor, but I could work in, I ended up majoring in marketing and communications. So that was like, okay, let me just be involved with the music industry. Then the next step after that was like, oh man, if I have to wake up every day, go to work and be surrounded by artists and musicians who are like pursuing their career and dreams every day it's going to be like this this sunken feeling in my chest you know so yeah i made the decision i was like after college i was like i'm going to try this i'm going to see what happens and and just go from there i had no expectations at all whatsoever yeah it's funny that you mentioned sitar and engineering and ravi just started laughing at me because that's literally what i did i grew up <laughs> playing sitar and then i was like i'm gonna go into engineering <laughs> god dude i identify with that story so much it's it's incredible just just a little sidebar like i went to my parents both uh did engineering uh or so my dad did engineering my mom went into teaching and basically like my whole time growing up they told me like you need to take a stem career you need to follow like a very you know, straightforward path towards stability. And like only now after starting to work in corporate, I'm realizing that a creative profession is, is like in any capacity is something that I'd want to chase. But anyways, I, I loved everything you just said because I was like, oh my God, my twin. <laughs> no, it's yeah. I love everything that you said because I, I kind of went through that whole like, yeah, you should, you should go into med school or engineering or whatever. And I went into engineering because I actually really love it. Um, and I find it really interesting. And I've always been a math physics type of person anyway. Then I went to art school. So I made like that hard turn. And that was not something that everyone really approved of. But it was also like I, I didn't feel like I could pursue it as some kind of a hobby um, and and watch everybody else around me do the thing that they were really wanting to do. So I get it. Totally. Yeah. So all of that being said, I know you kind of touched on it a little bit in your last statement, but basically, how has your South Asian and Bengali identity kind of found its way into your story and music? So my, um, when, I, when I was really young, my, my parents used to go to this farmer's market. And as the story goes, apparently there was a girl playing violin. And I was like, oh, I want to learn I play violin and I was, I was too young to remember that. I remember the farmer's market. I don't remember that specific moment or whatever. Um, actually, no, I remember the girl, but I don't remember being like, I want to do that, you know, but I ended up picking up the violin being got classically trained, private lessons, all that stuff. And my mom at some point, um, as I was entering my teens started like transcribing Bengali music into uh, classical Western notation. And then I started playing, Bengali songs on violin. And that was kind of something I'd do 
as you know, like when you go to like Dawats or like people's houses, they, just everyone loves to flex their kids. Like this is my, my, my kid can do this. <laughs> my kid got first place at the science fair. Very, you know, very typical brown auntie. All the know, times I've placed a thar for aunties. Oh God. <laughs> yeah. And they just, that was the thing. It would be like, all right, there's like 20, 30 people in the room and Oh yes, uh, Shoji learned this song today. Like, let's let's hear it, and then they'd have me play, and I'd play at the temple and like all that stuff because they'd have like you know the culture cultural dancing and and all that, which I was happy to do at that time. It was great. I loved performing and like very felt very comfortable. Like I, I've always, you know, orchestra and recitals and all that. That was that was very came natural naturally to me. Um, but it's funny because, you know, as I, as I was entering music, my, my taste expanded. And what was funny is that I grew up very sheltered. Like I was only listening to classical music and Bengali music and, and Ravi Shankar and all that stuff. And my parents at first, when we came here, they were like very, uh, what's it called strict about our culture and, and like holding on to it, which, you know, I feel like every, second generation immigrant kind of goes through of that identity crisis of we're in America, but then, you know, all all this cultural stuff is like, you know, put on our shoulders. And, you know, as I was becoming a teenager, like everyone sort of goes through their angsty phase and I was like, "Ah, I want to listen to like American music. Like I want to know what my friends are listening to. And then, you know, for me, it was like almost like this pressure cooker situation where I was like instantly dove really deep into American music because it was just like tickling this part of my brain that, had never existed and pop music, which I adore, was just like, it was just scratching that so nicely. So I started listening to like hip hop, pop punk, pop music. I loved, I loved it all because it was just not classical music and it was not, you know, traditional music. Um, and that, that opened up all my interests beyond the stuff that I was raised on. And when I started producing, I was really just into electronic stuff because growing up, if I heard synthesizers or stuff like that, my, my head was just really drawn to it. And I had this friend, Nabil, who's actually Bangladeshi as well. Shout out, Nabil. He, he always told me, like, hey, man, like, you should try merging, like, sampling, basically, like, um, classical music, classical Indian music with electronic stuff. And then I kind of ignored him for a really long time. I'm like, no, I'm not going to do that. Um, and then one day we were trying to have this record submitted for foreign family which is odessa's label and i was like okay i'm gonna try nabil's idea finally and that's kind of how like indian summer was birthed and i know it's so funny because this question is it's one that i've gotten for a really long time and i feel like the answer has has evolved and transformed since and i'm glad that you're asking it because it's a it's a really good question that i think deserves an answer as the years go by because it it, it's just constantly changing so despite getting this constantly I, i still think it's great because when I was first asked this in 2015, I think the expectation was, are you going to make more music like this? Like, are you going to make more music like Indian Summer? And, you know, for those those few years after, it was really interesting because, like, and then this, I think this is one of the questions you had written. It was like, oh, well, you know, what was it like to have this big hit, like having a one-hit wonder? And for a long time, there was that pressure. It was like, what are we going to do after this? You know, like, will we make something that's just like this, like a sister song or a companion song? And that was really tricky, you know, because now everyone was listening to it. It started appearing in commercials and, and TV shows and movies and all this stuff. And it, this, this tour de force that we had no control over. And it's interesting, you know, I think 
I think if you zoom out and look at what's happening globally, like there's so much music around the world that's being enjoyed. In America, for example, K-pop is so massive. People are people love Korean pop music. There's so many bands that are being taken a bit more seriously now, get, going to award shows, playing late night and all that stuff. And it's so cool to see that. Um, but I think for our culture specifically, there's this, there's almost this roadblock that the West has a really hard time accepting music that comes from South, Southeast Asia, or so, sorry, South, South Asia, South Asia, right? India, India, Bangladesh, Pakistan, Nepal. And I think that's because our music has this sort of inherent layer of tradition ingrained into it. You know, when we listen to like K-pop, they're clearly listening to Western influences and bridging that in their Korean language and then creating something that feels fresh because it's Korean people doing kind of Western style things. And it's so you have this like interesting flow of culture. It's like Western culture going to Korea and then being funneled back into the West through a Korean lens. Um, but you don't see that with a lot of South Asian artists. I mean, there's so many South Asian musicians, you know, but they, but anytime if they try to tap into their culture, there's a heart, there's kind of this barrier that pops up. And if you kind of look at historically who has become successful in the U.S., who are of South Asian descent, let's, let's go all the way back to Jay Sean. Jay Sean, you know, the branding was so ambiguous at the time. Yes, like the, the heads knew if you were a U.K. or if you lived in Queens, you knew who Jay Sean was. But once he reached that, like, pop radio status and he was doing songs with Lil Wayne, he was just kind of this ambiguous looking pitbull type character of just making big pop songs. And like, there's nothing about him that was like, oh, he's brown or whatever. Maybe some of his older stuff. But even then there was kind of like that ceiling of like, all right, he reached pop radio. And then like America wasn't really ready yet to kind of, you know, elevate him further, you know? And after that, like, you know, if you want to talk about solo artists, I mean, now currently we have Nav. Nav is so fascinating to me because he is also one of, I don't want to say ambiguous, but like he gets away with a lot. I mean, he's a rapper, he says the N word and like no one kind of bats an eye. Everyone wants to root him on and cheer for him. But like, he's not really touring or anything like that. He has like the weekend association. He has massive, massive, massive hits. The streaming, like people love him, they adore him. But there, there still isn't that balance of like the people coming out to the shows and like, him carrying a tour on his own. It's always kind of this association with other rappers and stuff. Um, and he also does not do, like, he doesn't have, like, the South Asian influence. It's just straight up Boy Wanda style beats. And he's a producer, too. He's, he makes the hip-hop beats. Um, and it's really interesting, you know? And, like, it's something that I've been very aware of for a really long time. Um, would I do it again? I'm open-minded. I think in that time, I was just still trying to figure out who I was as an artist and it was when you're new you're, and you're doing electronic music, it's a lot of experimenting. It's a lot of trial and error and seeing what works and what doesn't work. And despite that working, it wasn't something that I was like, I want to do that again. I, I just really liked music that kind of laid beyond traditional Indian music. So I didn't want to like almost pigeonhole myself. So I was like, I, I want to make, I love synth pop. I love indie rock. I, I would love to produce songs like that. I'd love to work with vocalists and, and do features so if you listen to the discography, obviously everything after Indian Summer is very different sounding. There's a lot more emphasis on synthesizers and, and synthwave and all that stuff. And obviously pulling from indie music, pulling from traditional EDM arrangements and stuff like that. Um, but that's why it's such a great question because it just, it, 
there's so much has changed since then. You know, the song came out in 2015. It's now 2021. I'm a, I'm a very different person than I was at, at 24. But yeah, you know, my my focus is just trying to make the best music as I can and making something that I'm proud of. I'm still open minded to incorporating influences from South South Asia, but um, at the time, or at this current time, there there just isn't anything that that makes sense at the moment. That being said, there's a lot of artists who are doing that, and I I want to see that becoming more popular. I don't remember who is also from Brooklyn and who are also playing at our um, Brooklyn Mirage show this August. They're so good at at, at, at doing that, and I think in some ways. Um, they're kind of carrying that expectation so much better than I could ever do, which I think is great. Whereas like, where like the, maybe the original fans are like, Oh, we want more like Indian summer type music to that. I say, check out Memba because I think they're so phenomenal and they're so incredible. And they're so just like, they're really versatile producers too. They could make almost any kind of music. Um, shout out Ishan and Will. They're both New Yorkers too. Ishan is in, in Brooklyn and Will is, I think lives in like, in Manhattan or something, but incredible people. And, and they, they do, they do it just so well, you know, I'd love to see them get, get more shine because they're super talented. Yeah. I mean, I'd, I'd never felt like after you made Indian summer, I was like waiting for the next Indian or South Asian influence hit from you or anything. It just, you know, it just started to feel like you were making the music that was you. And I remember when I first reached out to you and I called you Jay Wolf and you signed that message with Sajib, I was like, oh, okay. I think he like actually really, he's, he's very Bangladeshi and he's like very proud of that fact, which I really, I really admire. It's like you said, it's not something that you often see um, in the industry. So that's really cool. Kind of the flip side to that Indian summer question. And I love that you like studied the outline <laughs> when you got here, but um, <laughs> <laughs> the, yeah. So I was, I was wondering if you ever felt like you would be a one hit wonder and you kind of talked about that pressures. Follow-up question to that. How did you get out of, I don't know if it was like a rut of feeling like you might end up in that position or how do, how do you come out of that as a creative and motivate yourself to make different pieces? That's a really good question. Um, I think it's just time, you know, like the, the song had an initial one to two year like momentum where it's just getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And like, one way to track that is daily plays. Um, and so if it was getting more daily plays two years later than, than when it came out, that's how you know it's just peaking, you know, it's just getting bigger and bigger. So that just gave me time to just really think of, of what I wanted to do next, which I think in the music world is, is a bit of a luxury. Because let's say you put out a song and it doesn't do too well, you're going to have to follow it up with something, you know? So we, I would say that it was two things. It was, it was the luxury of having the momentum and then just time to myself to like really think about what we did my album, which had a 2019 release, that's four years after Indian Summer, which is plenty of time for me to like really take my time with what I wanted to do next. Because to me, the the first album is like the real statement of like this is this is what it is, and then after that, you have like the evolution of having different eras. I love when artists take their time and create something a little bit different, and they're not regurgitating the same thing over and over again with every album or every single. Um, if you like listen to almost every song in my discography, you'll, you'll see that they all have some shared elements, but they sound pretty distinct from one another. And I think that just, just having the time and, and knowing what I wanted to do really helped out. I also think that like, you know, I, I, I daydream a lot. I, I really like think about like 
what I want to do next and what I, what I want to like be known for and, and all that stuff. And, and even with our show, the show is a big part of like who we are musically too, because in electronic music, the live show is like a big, a big part of, of your identity and, and your world. So just from, from that and just like really thinking about how we wanted to express ourselves that way. Um, it was just time having time in our hand and, 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 and wanting it, you know, cause I, I love playing shows. I love, I love that as an experience. And I think that was a big motivator too. It was like, if we want to put on something great, we're going to have to create like a really cohesive body of work and, and take our time with it at the end of the day. So I've, I've kind of a follow-up question to that as well. So like, obviously in the creative world, there's like, there's the pressure of being an artist and wanting to, to pursue basically your own identity and your music. And then there's also the pressure of commercial success, right? So I, I guess, how did you balance that? Like, I'm sure you had the thoughts many times, do I need to change, do I need to chase what people want in terms of, you know, Indian summer and that type of sound? Or do I chase my own identity in terms of music? Yeah, that's a, that's a really, really good question. Um, what I, what I like about my world is that commercial success it can mean so many different things. And I think that's a, that's a really lovely part of the music world. Um, just depending on what corner you kind of exist in, because it can be defined in so many different ways. I think in the electronic world, you can make a song and it doesn't have to necessarily stream well for you to like tour and put on a show or anything like that. So, you know, obviously every song I put out after didn't, has not commercially performed as well as Indian Summer but they've done well enough where they've sustained people's interest in wanting to see our live show, wanting to buy our merchandise, wanting to buy vinyl and stuff like that. And that's good enough for me because I, I'm just happy to make music and release it. I have no expectation of like, Oh, this needs to have this many streams and we need to, you know, you know, if you want to, if you want to measure commercial success through, through units, like that's not something that that's kind of like in our heads, for me, I would say that just having a fan base that is continuously loyal to you, that will continuously buy your tickets buy, and support you in any way, especially if you make, quote unquote, drastic creative decisions that are different from what they might have originally become a fan of you for, you know, that to me is what, what, what real, what defines success, that you have a group of people who like have your back, who will always support you no matter what. Um, and not, not to bring up Nav again, but again, I think I find him very fascinating just from like, a, like he is a South Asian rapper and he's a musician and he's very successful. You go on his Spotify page, he has, he does crazy numbers. He's doing hundreds of millions of streams. He has massive, massive radio hits, but I would not say that he's touring at the same capacity as we do. It's like two different things, you know? So depending on what your, your metric is, it's going to be wildly, wildly different. Um, but yeah, we have, I have no expectations. I, I'm at the end of the day, I make the music I want. I work with, we work with an independent music label, mom and pop. They're based in New York city. They're phenomenal. They give me so much creative freedom. And at the end of the day, I just get to make what I like my, my ethos from, from, or my philosophy from the start has always been making music that I would want to listen to. So I always try to like, I'm like, Oh, this is what I gravitate towards. I like these kind of drums. I like, this kind of sound. I like vocal chops and stuff like that. I want to hear more of that. Uh, so at the end of the day, if I'm happy, that's kind of all that matters, you know? I love that. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah. You mentioned the word daydream and it's been floating around in my head because I just love the way that that sounds because I feel like it describes 
at least how I feel when I'm listening to... I know your whole discography, by the way. I'm like, I've always been a big fan. Um, sorry, I'm trying not to. Like, this oh, episode is not about me. You. I don't want to like sit here and fangirl. But it, it does feel like... No, you're fine. You're fine. <laughs> it does just feel like the correct word um, when I'm listening to your work. Okay, Ravi, go ahead. <laughs> I love that. You're awesome. Okay, um, so pulling back to, to identity and story, um, kind of a different question... So you mentioned your parents were involved in the physics world. So what, what is your parents' story and what's your current relationship like with them? Great question. You guys have great questions. <laughs> um, so, yeah, our, our story, um, my, so I'm trying to like think of a good starting point because <laughs> there's so many, so many different places I could start. I mean, I guess I could say, uh, you know, we're, so we're Hindu Bangladeshi, you know, and I know that like that is definitely in South Asia, there's obviously a lot of complex relationships between all the different groups. You have Pakistan, you have India, you have Bangladesh, um, and you have Hindus, you have Muslims, you have Sikhs, all these different groups, um, way more than that. That's like just the tip of the iceberg of what I listed, but you know, in the past century, there's just all this, all the turmoil and conflict and all just stems from British colonialism and all that stuff, which is really unfortunate, but it's important to the story. Being Hindu Bangladeshi means that in Bangladesh, we are also a minority. So I've always joked that, you know, in America, we're like a minority's minority, you know, like there are not that many Hindu Bangladeshi people. There are Hindu Bengali Indians who are from India and live in Bengal. And that's a whole other thing. But Bangladeshi Hindus are a minority. And, you know, unfortunately, during the war, the, the whole genocide and everything and a lot of targeting of Hindus wasn't the best time. And that led to a bunch of different things. My uncle, he's a he was a doctor in Bangladesh and he was getting discriminated against in his hospital, which led him to immigrate to Sweden. And that was the catalyst for my, my father, my uncle's brother, he was like, hey, you know, we're going to leave the country. It's not working out for us. We want to find better opportunity outside. And my dad was the only other person in our entire family to listen to that. He applied to different places around the world. He applied to Japan and all these different places. Finally got, um, like, to do his PhD in America, in Southern Illinois, at a really random university, Southern Illinois University. Um, and um, yeah, so he came here. I was born. My mom and me came to visit. It was supposed to be a two-week visit, and we were supposed to go back. Two weeks turned into five years, and then we had to... It was another checkpoint, and then five years turned into, all right, we're staying here, you know, um, which is a big decision, obviously, when you come from a country that had just become independent 20 years before, you know. And, um, my mom, she came here, she, she went to get her master's and then she did, she, she did her post back to get a, a computer science degree because that field was getting really popular at the time. And we were living in Illinois and then we moved to Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. And then from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, moved to New York for high school. I mean, brown people just move around a lot. We were just trying to figure out like our, just our life situation, you know, it's the, Tip, very typical immigrant story. And um, at some point, I think one of the big, big factors was, you know, my, my dad, he was working 
through a research grant and it's not paying like insane amount of money or anything like that. And when the grant ran out, suddenly my parents were jobless and they had to like really uh, pivot and figure out what to do next. And when you're a physicist, like there's not too many options. But one thing that they figured out was that med- medical physics was like a, a really sought after profession. So they had a friend, also a Bangladeshi friend, who trained them, you know, they had to like go through all the exams again. I mean, it's basically switching career paths completely, but thankfully their degrees like came in handy. And after 15 years, they finally became like extremely certified medical physicists. So now they're both medical physicists at like two different, um, I guess, clinics, because it's not like professional to work with your spouse or whatever, you know, they like try to keep it separate. But that's what they do now. Now they live in Long Island, New York. And like, to me, that is like the, you know, like a 20 year, 20 plus year long immigrant story of just like coming here, really trying to figure out what to do and, and planting your flag. I think for so many different people that those things happen at different times, like obviously you grow up and you'll have friends who are clearly more wealthy and like you, you start to realize that there's this relative, you know, uh, system of where everyone lands like you're like oh well they we live in an apartment they live in a house and we drive a honda and they they drive a mercedes and all these weird kind of things like you know will manifest as you grow older and navigating that was always interesting because it was like wow like we've lived for me i i feel like we've i've lived like i know what it's like to live in a really cramped apartment and like not have a lot of money and like I, when we were talking about pokemon like it was that it was like we literally could not afford cable or internet or anything like that um, at that time. And then finally getting to, you know, the, this, you know, suburban status, if you want to call that upper middle class or middle class or whatever. Um, that was, that was the 20 year journey basically for my parents. That's crazy. So, so follow-up question to that, given like the expectations that we were talking about earlier of wanting to go into like more traditional career paths, how how did your parents react when you started to see success in music? Um, <laughs> so they were they were supportive off the bat when I told them that I wanted to do music. I uh, I so I went to NYU, and you probably know NYU has a very hefty tuition. So actually, what happened senior year was I was not allowed to graduate because I was I forgot to submit something like i had all the credits but it was um i had to do like a presentation for the specific school i was in and i talked to the dean and they were like oh we can't let you graduate because you just didn't do this one thing i was like but can i just do it after the graduation like let's set it up for the summer and like just let me let me walk let me go to yankee stadium and get my gown and everything they're like no and so (laughs) that was a tricky phone call with my parents where i was like hey um they're not letting me graduate. <laughs> and like, um, I remember sh- going to Yankee Stadium anyways and taking photos with my friend's gown <laughs> just, so, just so I could like be a part of the experience. Cause I was like, come on, like, just let me, just let me do this. Um, and so that was, in, uh, at that time I was like, oh, mom, I'm, I want to move to Brooklyn. My, my friend's going to get an apartment and I'm going to work on music. And they're like, well, you're not graduating, so maybe you should just move home and figure this out and like not spend our money or anything like that. I was like, all right, that's fair. That's very, very fair. Um, I don't deserve that. I don't deserve the, the post-college lifestyle just yet. So I moved home and they 
you know, it's the typical, the typical brown family, like being there for you. Like no, no white family would do this where they like feed you and do your laundry and all that stuff. Bring fruit to your room. <laughs> yeah, all that, yeah. Bring fruit to your room. <laughs> just c- cut bananas and everything. And like, I mean, man, I, I owe them so much because they were just, they were so kind and understanding. And I know that every brown family is different. I know this could have gone in so many different ways. They were never angry or anything like that. But I would say that first year, it was um, 2013, 2014, was just like trying to figure it out, trying to see what I could do. And, and they were like, they, they kind of gave me a time on there, like, take a year to figure it out. And then if not, like, please get a, get a job, get a real job. Um, so it was, I would like to say it was like a neutral support. It wasn't like they were happy, but they were also not super, super, super disappointed. Part of that is because I do think that this is where like the Bangladeshi, like musical cultural background came into play where, yes, maybe the average Bangladeshi family would not support it. But because it was so ingrained in our culture, they kind of like understood. And my dad, he's like a photographer, like like, that's his hobby. Like they have like that, that art artist mentality ingrained in them. So I'm, I'm very thankful that they had that. When things are starting to roll, then they were like extremely on board because, uh, you know, that's just kind of how it is. And this goes back to what we were saying about flexing. Like they, it's at the end of the day, any, any type of success, no matter what, what career they're just gonna, they're just gonna flex it. But for me, my, my, um, my, um, standard for finally roping them in and like, come check out the show was, uh, first hometown headline show sold out. It had to like, check off all three boxes and that was 2015 uh we played rough trade which unfortunately i saw they're shutting down because of the pandemic um for anyone who doesn't know rough trade is a a vinyl store and a venue in brooklyn um it's 500 cap so at that time it was like shit 500 people is are they really going to come out to this like we were doing opening slots and stuff like that in smaller rooms um, but yeah, no, that one sold out. I remember the day before it was on sale for about three months. And then the day before we got the word that we sold the whole thing out and the summer was out. So it was kind of riding off of that. So I was like, cool, I'm going to tell my parents to come. And so they came to the show. And since then they come to every single, uh, New York show that we, that we do. And re- most recently they've, they've, they've come to, we played our biggest show yet in LA, um, in 2019 for the album tour. So they flew to Los Angeles for the first time to come see the show. And then um, when we did Australia, they came to Australia because we have cousins now who immigrated to Australia. So it was like this big family thing of like, they're going to come follow the tour (laughs) and and check out the shows. So that was, that was like unreal being like, Oh wow. I have like, my cousins are here. My, my parents are here, like in a whole new country, very surreal. And so, you know, they, I'm glad to have their support from, from day one. That's incredible. That's awesome. Because <laughs> uh, <laughs> it's very different from they, what they've grown up with. Yeah, I mean, I think they understand it. My, my parents have also gone through, like, a cultural shift. They were, like, very anti-American. Like, don't, don't listen to MTV or watch MTV or anything like that or pop radio. And now my mom, like, will be in the car and she'll be like, oh, this is the new Rihanna song, right? Like, this is, this is the new Zayn Malik song. <laughs> she, like, she's very tapped in. She knows. So... I, yeah, if I put out something, they'll be like, "Oh, like yeah, I love your new song," and maybe they're being nice, but they, I think they, I think they're, they're more aware of of the world, you know. Nice, I love that. Um, so early career, 
when you're chasing this for the first time, what kind of obstacles did you face both, uh, I guess, in the music industry and trying to find, you know, your own sound and stuff like that? And then also like personally, so like mental health, motivation, stuff like that. Um, yeah. So, man, this is this is so interesting. And I, I, w- I want to talk to more people about this because I feel like I've, I've, I've been through it and I feel like I, I have a lot of advice and uh, what to say for anyone new who's like trying to do music. Um, I will say for the electronic scene, it's it's very different from the standard like you're holding a mic and you're singing or rapping or performing. In the electronic world, it is purely based on not how you look like or anything like that. Uh, it's it's just the music at the end of the day. So at first, I was just cold emailing so many people. Like I would hit up local promoters to be like, "Can I open for so and so coming into town and stuff like that?" And I, I because I studied a lot of this stuff in college, I understood to a certain extent how the music world worked. I understood how marketing worked and communication, all that stuff, social media. Blah blah blah. I felt like I was on top of it, um, so I just yeah, I was just I was just persistent. That's like the that's I the first thing. If, no matter what you're doing in, in terms of music, if you're a singer or producer, it's just persistency because that's a that's something that will just take you uh, farther than a lot of people because the majority of people will give up at some point. And so if you're the one who's who's constantly pursuing or being persistent about what you want to do, it, it will take you to those first initial steps. So yeah, you're going to get a lot of rejection. Like I, I got promoters saying like, Hey, like, you know, we already have opening slots for this or just like, you're not the right type of artist for, for this billing or whatever. It's just going to be like that for a really long time. Um, in terms of mental health, like, you know, I, <laughs> I, I, it's for, uh, to some extent it builds character. Like you, you really have to go through so much rejection before you find any amount of success. It's just going to be like that. And that's one of the things I can respect about New York City. Uh, so, Tanishri, okay, you're in New York. Mm-hmm. And Ravi, where are you? I'm in Houston, Texas. In Houston. Oh, cool, awesome. So, and you've been in New York before? I have not, I have not. Mm-hmm. It's on my list. <laughs> you gotta come to the show in August so we can all hang out. Um, yeah. So, the thing about New York, and Tanishri, you probably know this, it's very, it's very, um, it's very competitive, it's very cutthroat, right? And, it's the, it's the kind of place that like will just harden you at the end of the day. And this goes beyond music. Like no matter what industry you're in, I think that it's the kind of city that will just toughen you up a little bit and show you some tough love. And one of the ways that this came about and manifested is even my closest friends. It is very hard in New York City if you're playing a show to get even the people around you to come. It's just a no matter like like I knew I was shit also like I my music was probably ass like 10 plus years ago so I can I could understand and empathize why no one wanted to come to the shows but man it was just like you're just begging like come on no, like, no. people are just so 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 busy and there's 10,000 things to do there's, there's 10,000 other things exactly. to do that's what it is it's like it's not even yeah. personal I always say that, yeah. In New York City, you always have multiple options. There's so many things happening, especially in your young 20s, someone's birthday, it, there's a party, blah, blah, blah. Or like you have the choice to stay in and not like do anything that weekend. But man, like one of the first shows I did, I remember they were like, okay, you can play the show, but you're going to have to sell 25 tickets. And they gave me physical tickets to sell to my friends. And I was like, okay, I'll do it. I don't think I even sold like 10. <laughs> And they're like, we're not even, they're like, we will only pay you if you sell 25 tickets. 
And that was, it's just, it's just stuff like that. Like you, you have to just go through those initial stages of rejection and failure or even just, you know, and, and it, it will be tough for a really long time. Um, and yeah, mentally, I'm trying to remember how I felt because I think back then I just didn't have any expectations. I, I still remember one of my first goals was like, oh, I just want to open for someone. I never thought like, oh, we can like headline these shows ourselves or play this or whatever. It's just like, yeah, I'd love to, I don't know, go on tour with Skrillex or something like that. And like, that's enough for me, you know? And I, it's funny because I actually found a conversation from a friend um, almost 10 years ago and it, it was like, I think I gave myself a timeline. It was like, all right, let's, let's see what happens in, in like in the next five years. And if it doesn't, then, you know, I'll just do this. And like, I'll be happy with what I did in that, in that time frame. But um, yeah, it, it's uh, it, I don't think I was uh, upset with any of that or anything, maybe because also, again, it's a different world in the electronic world. You can play club shows, you could have opening slots, you could do a local circuit and like it will relatively work out. You know, I thought that was kind of my threshold of like, ah, if I could just, you know, be in, in front of an audience and, and, and DJ, like that's kind of good enough. If you're a singer and you're a rapper and you're trying to break in, that's a whole different story. I think that that, that world is way more tough because people are, are coming to you for your persona, how you look like, your personality. Like, are you attractive? Are you cool? Are you like all these different kind of like X factors that don't really exist in electronic music. Most people don't even know what, what Odessa looks like or Flume looks like or whatever. Or like I've had, um, <laughs> I had a friend last year who we connected through, uh, through Twitter and they're like, I didn't even know you were Daisy, which I thought was really funny. They're like, <laughs> I thought you were just a white guy who made, who did like Indian summer and like sampled it. I was like, Damn, yeah, then that's on that's on electronic music branding for a lot of people. Like they just don't know who these producers, how they look like or whatever. Um, and that's kind of a pro. I would say in our world, I think that's great because like it's one less headache to worry about, you know. I think that what you just described a little bit earlier about how you didn't really think any further than wanting to open for other artists. There's something about that that makes me think about this is immigrant mentality or this is first generation mentality, right? Just not dreaming, but not dreaming too big. I don't know if that's something you agree with. No, I, I totally agree with that because it it's like I was daydreaming, but it was like stunted daydreaming. And then I, I, at some point I had to like kind of trick myself out of that. And then eventually once I did, then it was like limitless possibilities, blah, blah, blah. And that is like, that became like a multi-year journey after. But it's something you have to... You have to unlock because because uh, it's it's locked up for so many people, you know, like we all have. I feel like most of us have that in us. And like if only we could see who these people, what these people could be if, if they attempted to unlock it. You know, if there's people who are pursuing acting or, 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 or painting or anything like that or anything creative. Um, and that's something that I've always thought about, even on the consumer side of music, too, because. <laughs> I, 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 I've just observed so much over the past years, even going to shows and everything and, and what the demographics are. And, and this kind of goes back to K-pop and K-pop, you know, a lot of these fans, they're, they're Korean, Japanese, Chinese Americans who like love BTS and they, they Blackpink and all these people and they'll support them. 
but you don't see that same energy in, in the South Asian community. It manifests very differently. Support, um, because not only is it like stunted artistry, it's also almost stunted consumption. It just kind of manifests in a different way. So there hasn't been someone who who everyone has sort of rallied around just at the same level as an artist like BTS or Blackpink. And I want that because that goes beyond anything that I do. Like it, it's literally someone who can be an actual icon through a microphone because that's a different world, like a singer or a rapper or whoever. And we still haven't had that person yet. I think that that moment is happening very strong, strongly for the um, East Asian community, which is awesome. It's so sick to see over the past few years. And even in Hollywood, it's kind of coming hand in hand where you have everything from Crazy Rich Asians to Minari to Shang-Chi that's coming out later this year. Um, 88 Rising, which is just this collective of amazing, talented musicians. They have this infrastructure to bring it all together to become this like cultural force. And in the South Asian community, there hasn't been that just yet. And it's kind of um, multiple pieces working together. It's not just artists, but it's people who are like putting the puzzle pieces together and it's the consumers. I think that because we have a lot of traditional kind of like um, traditional mentality in us, ingrained in us, our, our, not only is the artistry stunted but also the way we like kind of consume culture and stuff it's still kind of like you know we like bollywood and we like traditional stuff and, and stuff like that which isn't a bad thing i'm trying to not knock on it at all but that marriage of like you know coming together for for a, a western style artist who's like a singer or anything like that hasn't we haven't reached that yet which i want to see i want to see in the next decade i want to see the the equivalent of what's happening with east asia happen with south asia we do have, I know a lot of people say like, well, what about Zayn Malik? He's, he's different. He's like, he comes from one direction. He's British. He's half white. And he doesn't really tap into, he, he's white passing enough. You know, it's, it's not like full blown South Asian representation. Like I'm, I was always stoked on him from day one. I remember finding out he was half brown. I was like, that's so sick. He's a pop star, but it's not the same. He doesn't have like Daisy's aren't the ones supporting him. It's one directioners, which are global and above different races, you know? Um, yeah, I have a whole spiel on that. But what I'm basically trying to say is that I would love to see a shift in the next 10 years. I want to see someone take it even farther and, and become an, like an actual icon, you know? You know, I think that it doesn't have as much to do with the icons even. I think that South Asian solidarity is just really hard to find. And it kind of dates back to in my mind, it dates a little bit back to colonialism because, you know, the colonizers came and there's so many different subsets in like within the culture, religions, um, subcultures, relig uh, I, I just said religions, languages, etc. regions. And so what was easy for them to do was to pit people against each other, pit different groups against each other. And some of that has still trickled into, it hasn't been that long since Bangladesh became a country in 1971, right? Like it hasn't been that long since they left um, South Asia. And so we're still, we still have this in our blood in a way. Um, we're still at the point where in general for South Asia, it's just so hard for us to want to be supportive 
of each other. Um, and that really blows. I would love to see like that South Asian icon. But um, I do think I do think we're getting there. I think that things like immigration have helped because now that we're here, kind of on the other side of of things, um, of colonization, of like moving to a new world, getting a new life, everything. Um, I think that we are at the point where we are becoming more supportive of each other because we're like, oh, wait, actually, we have so many senses and we don't have to be from the same um, cultural or religious backgrounds and et cetera. So I'm hopeful, even though I said some negative things just now, but I'm hopeful. No, it's 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 so true. And you you, you bring up a, a great point that I had not thought of. It's it is that like, yes, they have pitted us against each other for a really long time, which is so fascinating because. In East Asia, I mean, like Japan and Korea have a very sort of like similar complex uh, and conflict oriented history. And yet, like there are Korean pe people listening to J-pop and Japanese people listening to K-pop and all that stuff, you know? Yeah, you know, they they tried to get um, East Asian armies to attack each other, their own people. It didn't work. They tried it in India. It did work. That's the difference. Yeah, and it definitely has trickled down, and it, it's just manifested in different ways. And then, yeah, we do have a very kind of tribal, tribal mentality, and then also like the competitiveness too. Mm -hmm. And I, I would, I don't want to say I'm above it because I get it. I think that something that has existed in Hollywood, and this is my take. I don't know these people personally, but there's always the there can only be one mentality. Think about Aziz Ansari at the time; he was the reigning king of that sector he was the guy that they would always go to him to cast him as like the funny indian guy um and then they just didn't really allow anyone else to flourish simultaneously the only reason or not the only reason one of the reasons why you have more people like kumail and hassan kind of like coming up is because of the absence of aziz which is really really interesting and the same thing is kind of happening with with mindy too and by the way i just want to clarify i love all these people and i don't think that and not throwing shade or anything. I'm trying to objectively observe what's been happening in Hollywood. I also don't want to say it's their fault too, because again, this is like you said, this is a colonizer's mentality of like, there can only be one of them, you know, one is enough. But it's the same thing with Mindy Kaling. There isn't any like comparable South Asian woman or woman identifying person who, who's done as, who has been as successful as her. Same thing in music as well. There's, there's this just inherently ingrained in us too. And that's something that I tried to try to fix myself for the past few years in the electronic world. It's a little different because I kind of got swept in. And, and like I said before, it's not very image related, but I've always tried to bring other South Asian people on tour, or Asian people on tour, or try to put them on as much as I can. Hotel Garuda, South, my friend Asim, he's, he's Indian. I always try to like do as much as I can to uplift and, and help out. Um, but then beyond that, outside of my genre, I see that what I've noticed is that, man, there are a ton of really cool South Asian artists. I want to see all of them shine. I want to see some sort of connecting community that brings us all together. And what, like, why don't we have an 88 rising, like comparable thing, you know? And like I said, it's a bunch of different things. It's not just on the artists, but it's like the lack of a, a, a larger support system and network that can bring us all together. One thing that I've mentioned to my friend, um, do you guys know Sarah Khan? I know the name. She's, um, we, we connected last year. Shout out to Sarah. One thing we realized was, um, is you were supposed to do Coachella last year. And she said, oh, I'm going to be there doing press and stuff. We should set something up. Um, and just through talking, I was like, man, isn't it crazy that like in 2017, 
Nav and me and and Riz Ahmed and Hakeem's um, were all playing Coachella, but nobody brought us together. Nobody like introduced us. Nobody had like been like, hey, we have like four South Asian people playing this festival. Let's like put them together and do an interview or, or some press like that. And at that time I had like, I was kind of talking to Heems, like we had met and like I've, I've texted him before. Um, and he was playing the same day I was like, I think at a different time. And just like, there's just no effort made there. And that was such a missed opportunity to me. You know, there, there was nobody who worked in press in media or at the label side or whatever, who, who connected those dots, you know? And like, that would, that's such a crazy moment. If you really, truly think about it, you had, um, it, Riz Ahmed is Pakistani or is he Muslim Indian? I want to say he's Pakistani. I know that he's Muslim. I think <laughs> hopefully no, no one watching this is like judging us for not knowing, <laughs> but, <laughs> or listening. Sorry. Um, yeah, it's, it's just crazy that like, you had an Indian person, a Bangladeshi person, a Pakistani person at Coachella. And like, there's nothing done there, you know, missed, completely missed opportunity. Yeah. So but you guys had to yeah, take your own initiative to reach out to each other, I guess. Which is, which is something that I've, I've been trying to do more in the past year, especially like during the pandemic. It was like, well, there's literally nothing going on. Let me dive in and try to see what's, what's out there. And I'm sure there's other people who have done a much better job than I have. I'm just getting started at like trying to see what else has been happening. Cause especially because I've been in my own bubble for a really long time, but I would love to just do whatever I can to uplift any South Asian creative who's trying to work in music or, or make music and, and see what they can do. Because like I said, my world is very limited to it's, it's a producer world. It's, it's, it's not holding a mic and being an icon. That is something that someone else can do so much better. And like I said, the next 10 years, by 2030, I want to see that person. That's so interesting. Like the thing that I've noticed just trying to get into the the music industry over the last couple of years and finding this niche in South Asian music is that I feel like there's almost this emergence of this like first or second generation South Asian creative that's blending, like you were saying, like a lot of the Western styles into some of the more traditional things. So like artist names that I'm very hopeful for in the future that come up to mind when you mention things like that are like, Rav, or not Ravina, um, Raja Kumari um, in the hip hop world, uh, Vidya Vox, you know, different artists like that, that are actually like bringing that, you know, South Asian identity into their Western type music. Right. So I don't know. I, I'm very hopeful as well because I want to see that person. Um, and Hassan Minaj, there's a quote, I think he, I think it might've been from a tweet or something that he had made, but he, he said once, he was like, I wonder how many amazing comedians, creatives, artists, musicians that we lost to being engineers, doctors, lawyers, that type of thing. Oh, yeah, dude, it's it's so true. Like it's it's untapped and I want to see more of it. I think I think we're making progress. I think that like, especially with Gen Z, man, like I, I always go through TikTok and it's been cool to see just South Asian creatives who are trying something different. And I've come across a lot of cool um, musicians on there that I'm, I'm excited for who I think have a lot of potential. And yeah, I, I do think that there is a shift coming. It's slowly happening, but slowly and surely we'll, we'll, we'll get there for sure. 
Sajib, I'm so happy that you're talking about all of this um, because I remember I reached out to you on Reddit like so long ago and I mentioned that I was coming up with the Desi collaborative, kind of an offshoot of the Desi condition where I like wanted to create um, a directory of South Asian creatives so that people can go and find each other and like support each other's work or collaborate with each other. And this all comes from like all the stuff that we're talking about right now and this... Um, decolonization mindset right decolonization is gonna happen when we force not force but like encourage community community is literally one of the words in the desi condition like bio like i they i believe that community is the answer to so many of life's problems um so it's just interesting that you brought all this up i didn't even really think the conversation was gonna go over there but i'm happy that it did Do yeah um community is like that's the thing that I've seen a lot in the electronic world in, in our own little bubble. It's, it's a really solid community. Um, and it is one that kind of transcends race as well, where like a, a, people will just uplift the people they want to work with their homies music that they're truly passionate about. And I think because of that, that's why I've gotten to like where I've gotten to where like the, with the help of people co-signing me. And then also with the help of like me and our, my friends rising up together helping each other out, supporting each other that I want to see what with like in the, in the larger scope of, of the South Asian like community. Cause that's the, that's the thing that's missing for sure. Um, and yeah, I mean like hopefully more people like you have the same kind of mentality where we can like kind of do that. Um, I've, I've already started to make like, I feel like Nick Fury in the Avengers where he's like trying to like assemble everyone together, <laughs> but like, I've been trying to like, like I said, just tap in a bit more and and be, be be there for for some of these people. Even even as like if it manifests into some sort of like mentor position, because I know that for me, I'm getting relatively older. I know that there is an eventual end date for what I do, um, and I want to make sure that like if when I transition to the next phase, that I would like to just make it easier for anyone who is going through what I'm doing and have someone that they can like, if they need have questions or if they need any advice, I would love to be there to, to help them guide them through that. Cause like I said earlier, like I've, I've been through almost everything, almost every level of like at the bottom and then as high as I can get at the, at the current moment. And I know what it's like. I've done tours. I've done, I've had shitty managers. I've had shitty label experiences, all that stuff. I've, I've, I've been screwed over, like literally your stereotypical music industry, like experience. I've experienced all the lows and all the highs. Um, and I would love for the next generation to, to hopefully avoid as much as they can, any sort of like negative hurdles that they, that they come across. But yeah, no, I am hopeful for the future for the for new young South Asian creatives. Oh, that makes my heart so happy. So that is the end of the first half of our episode with Sajib. Isn't he just so fun to talk to? There's more coming. The next part will drop on May 26th, and in it, we'll dive deeper into his musical influences, the creative process, and about just bridging the gap between up-and-coming South Asian artists. We'll also ask Sajib some fun personal questions that he's never answered before, and there is a lot of talk of cats. <laughs> so much talk of cats. So if you like what you're hearing, the best way to support us is by following us on the social means. We can be found on Instagram, Facebook at The Desi Condition, and on Twitter at TDC Podcast underscore. As always, tell your friends about this podcast. And if you're listening on a platform in which you can leave ratings and reviews, please leave us ratings and reviews. 
I hope you are staying safe. I hope you're enjoying the weather. I hope you're making good choices. And we will talk to you next time.